Welcome to the latest edition of MPM's Interconnections podcast. I'm John Burke, Managing Editor of New Project Media. Joining me today to discuss uh, the latest developments in Washington, D.C. is Adam Kobos, a partner in the tax practice for Troutman Pepper. Uh, Adam, welcome to the program today. Thanks very much for having me. Looking forward to talking with you. Great. So it's been a busy month. Uh, President Joe Biden made history on uh, November 14th by finally signing on the dotted line for the $1.2 trillion federal infrastructure bill. And next on the plate, of course, is the Build Back Better spending plan, which uh, renewable and alternative energy developers have been watching with great interest, uh, given that there's a series of measures uh, written there to incentivize uh, further production. Uh, however, uh, the, some of these broader spending measures have been met with far more opposition in both the House and the Senate on any number of levels. Those stories are circulating now that the House could vote in favor of the bill by this weekend. There's still more opposition waiting in the Senate. So, Adam, before we talk into some of these specific measures in the BBB plan, uh, where do you believe this bill now sits? So, as it has for quite a while, I think the you know the bill is is on a knife's edge. It's a series of knife's edges from start to finish. Um, you, you know that Democrats hold razor thin majorities in the in the House and Senate, and to overcome the the filibuster in the Senate, they're using for the Build Back Better Act this procedure known as reconciliation. Um, so the Democrats can can get a bill through both the House and the Senate is along a majority line vote. But because the Democrats margins of error are so thin, they can only afford to lose a few votes in the House and none in the Senate. Um, the the whole Build Back Better Act is susceptible at any time to falling off the rails. Right. You only need a couple one defection in the Senate, maybe a couple defections in the House and then the bill goes off the rails. So right now, the, the prospects look, I think, reasonably good for the Democrats to, to move this through. But, you know, as you pointed out, there's some hurdles to continue. They've got to get through another House vote, which could be as soon as the end of the week. And then they've got to get through the Senate and then the House and Senate have to you know, agree on that on that final text. So we Democrats have made a lot of progress, but we're certainly going to see there's going to be more excitement to come, no doubt. Um, the next question is fairly loaded, I have to admit, but what changes do you think need to occur that will resonate with some of the dissenters of the bill? You know, what's what's really interesting about this process is because the margins are so fine, you know, literally the, the preferences of, of a particular congressperson can, can make all the difference. So there, there are a number of things that have been very, very important to key constituents that have the ability, if not addressed in the way they want to see happen, um, could derail the bill. And so if the bill is going to succeed, these, these sorts of concerns have to be addressed. So what, one set of concerns right now is with moderates in the House. The, you know, the original plan was to have the Build Back Better Act and the infrastructure bill both, both uh, voted on by the House at the same time. But there was a coalition of moderate Democrats that were worried about the spending cost of the, of the Build Back Better Act and wanted to see the Congressional Budget Office, office estimates before they voted. So those, 
the CBO estimates are scheduled to come out on Friday. They're, you know, their pledge to, to advance the bill to vote on the bill was conditioned on the, uh, the costs, overall cost of the bill um, as determined by the CBO being consistent with the White House estimates. And we're hearing that right over the past few days, some preliminary indications that the CBO may not get there. So one thing we may end up seeing on the House side is, you know, the costs of the bill, the revenue side of the bill may have to may have to be brought in to bring those moderate Democrats on board. We'll have to see about that. So cost, I think both on the House side and the, and the Senate side could be, you know, could be something that's going to have to be dialed back. Um, you know, other you know, political targets that, that don't, I mean, it doesn't inform the renewable energy industry directly, but the, the deduction for state and local taxes, again, some uh, key representatives in New Jersey and New York have been very vocal from the very beginning of the process that the salt cap would have to be addressed. Uh, and the House and Senate have kind of floated maybe a couple of different ways of, of dealing with that salt cap. So getting some sort of reconciliation agreement on that, uh, that feature of the bill is going to be important as well. Um, and, you know, there, there's a corporate minimum tax that was introduced in the latest version of, of, the, of the House bill uh, as an alternative to increasing corporate tax rates or other revenue raisers. Um, and so whether the Senate's going to be com comfortable with that, we're going to have to see as well. So these are all, you know, little things in the larger scheme of the bill, but each of them, because it matters to, you know, certain of the Congress people here, uh, each of them has the perspective, the, the potential to derail the bill. Thank you for that summary. So getting into some of the key provisions, and again, uh, for, our, for our viewers, listeners, I want to preface this by saying this is the latest version of the bill, and we've already seen multiple drafts, but what state consistent has been the option of adding direct pay as an alternative to projects eligible for, um, the, it's for both the PTC and the ITC, correct? That's correct. And, um, you know, what, it, what's your sense in terms of its overall impact on the ability to, to get projects financed to start and how will it impact the tax equity market overall? That that is so. Those those are questions that have been consuming the the financing part of our of our world. Uh, people trying to understand what what the impact of direct pay will be. The you know the goal the political goal behind direct pay is to facilitate the the subsidy that the tax credits are intended to provide. Um, and just you know just by way of background here these tax incentives in the code absent a direct pay provision are an odd way of delivering a subsidy. Um, and the reason for that is tax credits generally are non-refundable, meaning again, without this direct pay legislation, they can be used to reduce tax liability, but to the extent they exceed your tax liability, they don't produce any current benefit. They can be carried forward. They're also non-transferable. Uh, unlike some state tax credits, for instance, which you can actually buy and sell, you know, like property, um, for federal purposes, they're generally speaking non-transferable, meaning only the owner can use them. So 
to be able to unlock the value of these tax incentives, there are financing structures, leasing transactions, partnership transactions, and, and hybrid transactions that thread the needle and unlock the value of those tax benefits by allocating them to, say, a bank um, or another large taxpayer with predictable tax liability who's going to be able to use those benefits currently. Well, as we saw you know, 10 years ago during the Great Recession, when tax capacity dried up, banks were suffering significant losses. There was a real concern as to whether the, the renewable energy industry would be able to continue absent those subsidies. Congress passed the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act that had the 1603 grant, which provided a direct cash subsidy from the government to projects as a way of kind of bridging the gap, um, providing financing during a time when, when traditional tax equity players couldn't do that. Well, the direct pay would do something similar. We're not experiencing the same sort of economic upheaval. There are still big tax equity players in the market, but there is this voracious demand for um, you know, for ways to monetize those tax credits. So the direct pay is this, you know, the, the political intent is to make it easier, more efficient to monetize those tax benefits. Wouldn't work quite like the 1603 granted, but it would work, you know, kind of when you file your tax return, you get a refund if you've, if you've overpaid or had amounts over withheld from your, from your paycheck. This credit would work in a similar way. You'd be treated as if you had overpaid and then would get the money back from the government at that time. Now, what, what's interesting is direct pay solves some of the problem, right? It makes the grant, the, the, the credits refundable, but, but there are other aspects of the financing transactions that are significant and important. Um, there are accelerated depreciation deductions, which get monetized uh, in these transactions as well. Uh, when you're talking about the solar ITC, there are transactions that do what we call step up the basis, uh, meaning you enter into a taxable transaction uh, to reset the basis of the project at its fair market value um, and unlock additional, additional credits. And monetizing the depreciation or dealing with the basis step up, those are features that aren't really addressed by the by the use of direct pay. Um, and in talking to other people, you know, sponsors and investors, um, direct pay can have some interesting accounting effects as well that, that you know, may or may not be um, ideal for, uh, for certain players. So we're seeing a mix of considerations that go into the decision whether to use direct pay. And I think for certain sponsors, some may decide that direct pay seems like a better way to go. Um, I think we're seeing that for other, for other sponsors, they're going, they're going to continue to want to enter into tax equity transactions um, because it's a more efficient monetization. I think the other big uncertainty about direct pay, um, which is a detail, but it's an important detail, nobody's really sure when you're going to get the money. There's not a clear... Um, obligation or, or payment window for that refundable credit to, to, to be made. And in the absence of that, I think people are looking back to the experience with 1603, where even where there was a, a, a statutory payment deadline, it could be extended where the Treasury Department asked more questions. And in certain proceed, proceedings, it took months and months 
for people to get treasury grants. I think people are looking back to that experience and are concerned that we may see the same with direct pay. And meaning that, you know, you may be able to unlock the tax benefits earlier by not opting for direct pay, opting for the, for the traditional tax credits. So that's a long answer, but, but it's, it's a, it's a uh, surprisingly complicated um, situation. And the facts and circumstances, I think of particular sponsors are going to, you know, drive their decision as to whether to seek direct pay or not. Let me ask a sequel to that. Um, you know, given how growing up the markets have gotten uh, lately, is that the right word? Or maybe more recently, where we're seeing um, things like renewable developers being traded to larger institutional players with better balance sheets, uh, you know, seeking an IPP model uh, where there's been um, a lot more uh, vehicles raised to invest equity capital and renewable generation. It, it, are all these tools there where the role of tax equity or even direct pay it could get marginalized over time? Or do you believe there's still a, 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 a viable uh, middle to long-term market for either vehicle or either tax equity or direct pay? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think the market for tax equity and direct pay you know, combined or, or the either or is going to, is going to continue for a long time. Um, and, and that's, that's because the many of the players who, who you're describing kind of the new entrance to the market, financial sponsors um, have cash, but, but many of them do not have, do not have that the sort of tax liability that you would need to, to monetize those, the tax benefits internally. So maybe foreign pension funds, uh, domestic pension funds or private equity. And with all of those financial sponsors, they're either um, non, not paying taxes because they've got net operating losses um, or because they have no U.S. operating history. So haven't, you know, don't expect to generate taxable income for a while or are tax exempt or in the case of many private equity funds, effectively pricing their returns to their investors based on a, on a tax neutral basis. So, so for all of those reasons, their you know, direct pay might be a solution for some of those financial sponsors uh, if the economics otherwise work out right. But, but they need direct pay or some sort of tax equity monetization structure to make that work. Now, traditional regulated utilities are a little bit different um, because maybe not recently, but if you go back in history, and I think if you project in the future a number of years, traditional regulated utilities and their affiliates are taxpaying entities. And so the, the set of incentives or the way they balance the, the considerations, you know, might for, for certain of those companies push them in a direction of, of being able to monetize the benefits internally. And for them, maybe then in the future, the tax equity market isn't necessary and neither would direct pay. Um, but, but many of those utilities right now, because of years of bonus depreciation and credits that they're currently carrying forward, many of those utilities aren't paying tax either. And so are, are dealing with issues similar to those financial sponsors where they're 
you know, they're looking for ways to monetize these tax benefits through tax equity or otherwise. Great. Appreciate you tying that all together. Um, and that's not easy to tie together. Um, so let's talk about storage, which has increasingly become a topic um, as something that is clearly growing, um, whatever the BBB Act might, might spit out once it's in its final form. Um, and um, up until this point was included in the ITC tax if, if it was part of a broader solar plus storage project. Uh, today, this bill will include storage on a standalone basis to become eligible for the ITC tax credit. And also a recent uh, version, the recent, most recent version of the bill made it a very broad definition about what was included under the term storage. Um, so I just wanted to get your sense about, A, what the impacts will be of storage being included under the ITC tax credit, uh, and B, in terms of broadening the definition, if we should expect other types of storage projects out there to try and apply for the tax credit as well, like a, a gas storage, perhaps. Um, just wanted to get your review on that. Yeah. Yeah. So both, I mean, both interesting questions. The, the first one, the, just having a bill for standalone energy storage uh, would be a huge development. One that's been kicking around for a number of years. We've been waiting, <laughs> waiting and waiting. Yeah. It's been introduced, you know, repeatedly. Um, you, you know, and we're seeing a lot of uh, batteries, battery and other energy storage de developers um, as startups come, come into the market and figure out ways to finance their, their deals without, without the ITC. But I think it's fair to say that the, an ITC for energy storage would be transformational. And an ITC for energy storage with direct pay uh, would, would be really, really, uh, really, really transformational. Um, so I think that that is a very exciting development. Um, and I think we could see huge growth there. Uh, one thing I think that'll be interesting to see, just by way of a nuance here, is that everybody, um, this is... Battery, you know, energy storage developers, but but also utilities. Um, everybody's trying to figure out exactly how to use batteries and what you can do with them. So we're still, I think, in a nascent area of how to price these these revenue streams from batteries, how to optimize them. It's a very very exciting time, but from a financing perspective, I think this variety of revenue sources can pose challenge from getting, say, a financing party like a bank, a lender, or maybe a tax equity provider comfortable as to what the revenue is that's going to be coming in the door. So, you know, making the, the deals financeable may be a challenge for some projects, but, but direct pay then, you know, might, it might be an interesting path forward for projects that, that still, because of uncertain revenues, may not be able to get typical financing. Um, they may be able to go it alone using their own equity. So I, I think for, for this industry at this time, the standalone ITC with the direct pay is a, is a very exciting development. It's gonna allow a lot of, a lot of flexibility. Um, to your second question, you know, what, is the, what does the broader guidance do? I, it, it is very, very interesting <laughs> that the version of the legislation that we have, it's very, very interesting to figure out what's not included as energy storage technology. Um, 
the way it worked in the previous bill was there was a, a laundry list of, of energy storage technologies. So batteries, um, uh, compressed air, pumped hydro, right. hydrogen storage, thermal energy, a, a pretty complete list, you know, and talking with, with some of the other, my, my colleagues at the firm, pretty complete list of the plausible energy storage technologies out there. Though if you want to go even deeper into the rabbit hole, you could Wikipedia <laughs> and see all the varieties yeah. of uh, storage technologies out there. Um, and at the end of that list, they had something that said in anything added by the, um, the secretary, meaning the IRS after consultation with the, with the Department of Energy. So the potential to expand it to, to, to literally anything. The, the language that we've got in the current bill is any property that receives, stores, and delivers energy for conversion to electricity. Sure. And maybe is so broad as to be difficult to apply in practice. You know, it's not clear what it means to receive. What does it mean to deliver energy for conversion to electricity? I mean, if you want to talk about things that might be included in the term, in, in this statutory phrase, I mean, you could think of a reservoir at a top of the hill that collects rainwater. Not, let's, just, let's just say it's not pumped hydro. There's no pump to bring the water up. Let's just say you store reservoir water in a reservoir at the top of the hill and then drop it down to drive it a turbine from time to time. I mean, you've stored, right? You've stored gravitational potential energy by accumulating the rainwater at the top. You know, so is is this is this energy storage? But you can you can take the you can take the example even farther. You know, you've got science experiments at school where you you know you plug wires into a potato and turn a you know power a light bulb. I mean, uh, you know, if you're growing potatoes, are you growing, are you, you know, are you receiving energy from the sun, storing it in the potato and then using it to, you know, power your light bulb? And then maybe a more practical version of the question is, I mean, is equipment at a coal plant that handles coal a storage facility because you receive energy in the form of coal? you know, hold on to it and then, and then deliver it, you know, maybe into the, into the coal plant for, for consumption into electricity. So I, there's something perhaps a little bit too broad about that. I think it's, I think it's fair to say we would see IRS guidance come out that, that would limit the scope of that term, but it, but it may be a little bit difficult to apply in practice. Great. So yesterday, um, one of the real innovators in LNG development in the U.S., Freeport LNG, came out with news that they were executing a letter of intent to develop a carbon capture and sequestration project, uh, teaming up with uh, Talos Energy. Um, and, uh, you know, carbon capture still is a little bit of uh, science fiction in our country, just in the sense that, you know, we're going to see it eventually. And you know, maybe later this decade, but, you know, it's still very, very much early days. But nevertheless, um, you know, this is incentivizing further carbon capture projects was certainly part of um, versions of, of Biden's plans, uh, whether it be through the infrastructure bill or later the, the BBB uh, bill. But, um, you know, in this latest version, it's still there, um, an expansion of the 45Q tax credit which is uh, there to incentivize carbon sequestration. 
I'm just wondering, Adam, if you can just uh, break it down, what it means for these projects and, you know, is there enough there to suggest it's going to accelerate the, the development pipeline or are we still kind of ways away and this just helps makes the, the project more financeable? You know, what, what's the broader use? What's the broader use case for this particular expansion? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way you describe it is this is technologies or series of technologies that are cutting edge uh, and maybe require more some lead time, right, to, for them to be commercialized or to right. a point where they're going to be ripe for financing. So we're seeing projects under development, and I think some of the the, the most the most important things that we can see for these credits is a long runway. So extensions of the beginning of construction dates, um, expansions maybe of the restrict or loosening the restrictions on the things they potentially could qualify. Those, those are things I think that'll be really, really important to allowing for the commercialization of, of these facilities. Um, you know, right now, I think because of technology uncertainty uh, and other things like that, um, we're at the beginnings of the of the stage where we're going to see tax equity financing for these projects. Uh, what may be more likely at the beginning is for these projects to the extent, you know, to, to the extent they're going to be financed with the tax credits, they're going to be financed either internally using in, internal tax capacity or, you know, the extension of the direct pay to the to 45Q, which is another feature of the BBB, um, that, that could help significantly too. So I, I do think over the next few years, we're going to continue to see these projects expand. And there's a, there's a huge amount of, I think, excitement in the industry about them. But, but we are probably, you know, at the beginnings of that. Sure. Thanks for that. Um, so we're just going to quickly uh, go over um, some of the provisions in the, the bill that passed, the Federal Infrastructure Bill. Um, there obviously was lots of capital allocated for uh, re replacing aging roads, um, no, trains, um, lead pipe, uh, and other, other measures. Um, there were a couple of things that stood out for me for uh, renewable energy and alternative energy, namely an, a strong allocation for great infrastructure improvements of 65 billion and another 75 billion to build out an EV charging network, if you will. But grid infrastructure is obviously very important to all of us um, because we acknowledge we are dealing with a very aging grid in the US. Um, and in any American Society of Civil Engineer report can, can justify that over the last you know, 10 to 20 years. Um, but I sort of was thinking about, Adam, that like we know that there are a lot of offshore wind um, projects that are surfacing now on the East Coast with Vineyard Wind reaching financial close. And then you got Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York all in market uh, for offshore wind projects uh, that's going to come behind it. And the need for transmission resources where people are certainly bidding for both the transmission resource as well as the offshore wind project. And then third parties are just bidding only for the transmission project. So there's a lot of parties that could also benefit from here, but I'm just wanting to get your take about what do you think is going to get the real priority in that $65 billion allocation? That, that is 
That is an excellent question. I, they're going to be, I, I, that legislation I think has the potential to benefit, as you mentioned, offshore wind projects, but, but a huge variety of things just around the country. I mean, as you've said, we, we have an aging grid. In addition, um, you know, the surge to put a lot of renewable projects on the grid, which, you know, are more in, intermittent generating resources, you know, puts, puts pressure on the grid that, that additional transmission capacity could, you know, could help alleviate. So I think one of the, in, in just stepping back a moment, the infrastructure bill was a bipartisan bill. And so the, the item selected, you know, that made it, made it through the, through the mill, end up in the bill, um, are ones that have support across the aisles. And one nice thing, one good feature about the, about transmission is that it's, you know, in theory, it's energy agnostic, meaning you're not preferring coal over wind or wind over coal. It sort of acknowledges that, that improvements to the grid can benefit everybody however you think the energy mix ought to work. And so I do think that the, the grid improvements um, politically were a good place to put, a good place to put money. And, you know, again, the, part of the democratic strategy here with the way that they rolled out these two bills is if they were looking at the, you know, at, at the best case perspective of getting both the infrastructure bill and the bipartisan budget act through they could put the stuff that would get bipartisan support in the in the infrastructure bill and the the BBB. They could put in the you know the the stuff that appealed to the Democratic side of the aisle more. So so I think transmissions is a great example of something that has bipartisan support, but also I think a broad base. It's, it's going to benefit a broad constituency, maybe including the offshore wind developments, but but it has applications across the country. Great. And finally, just on uh, EV uh, charging, which is, again, a broad topic and has a very e much of an ecosystem all its own with, um, you know, whether it be buses getting electrified, long haul trucking getting electrified, people driving cars, <laughs> uh, and then uh, building the resulting infrastructure around it. Um, you might say that that measure is pretty broad in its own right, building out a nationwide network. Like, where do we even start with that? But <laughs> just wanted to get your two cents on that. Yeah, so there, there are a combination of proposals in both bills that are all getting at this, you know, that this, this concept of promoting electric vehicles. So there's, I think it's seven and a half billion set aside in the infrastructure bill. Yeah. Um, a significant portion of which is is there to improve transportation corridors, and there looks to be you know, in the appropriations part of the bill a, a set of constraints and preferences as to how those allocations would be awarded. But I think the goal is to give governmental entities the ability to you know to, to put in programs or suggestions for how these uh, funds would be deployed in their jurisdictions. And so, you know, this, this is a governmental um, top-down selection process, but with the ability, I think, for governments to contract with private and 
private ent entities to um, uh, to assist in this as well. I, it'll be interesting to see how far that that infrastructure gets, but of course that's a key piece of of trying to get consumers in America to um, to electrify their their vehicles. Um, the other side of it is, you know, on the uh, infrastructure bill, richer tax credits for electric vehicles to encourage consumers and, and businesses to um, to switch to electric vehicles or other zero emission vehicles as well. So I think there's you know there's a combination of approaches in these uh, in in these bills to incentivize this development, uh, but clearly a big push. There's also I think a significant allocation of funds for the federal government to green its fleet, right? And so that's another yeah. way that another another way you could see this this rolling out. Sure, sure. I'm just waiting for this all for the Tesla to go under uh, 20k. What do you think? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it is fascinating to see it happen. I mean, that is right. That's the goal, right? Yeah. And if you look at what's happened with solar and wind costs, you know, from that perspective, the, the tax subsidies have kind of helped, you know, drive, drive those costs down over time. So, you know, maybe we'll, we'll see the same thing in a few years with, with the EVs. Sure. Well, I'm sure Elon Musk will be happy that we ended this note, this podcast program with the name Elon Musk, but so be it. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And uh, please join us next time on the podcast, uh, Burke Out. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks a lot, Adam. Appreciate it. Have a good one.